Lord, we join all of creation saying praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We join the church around the world today singing hallelujah, praise the Lord. We join the church spread out through time to praise you, hallelujah, praise you, God, accept the worship of our hearts, the thoughts of our minds, and our commitment to follow you and to honor and obey you in the days ahead. Amen. Welcome to New Life this afternoon. My name is Greg Howe. One of the ways I volunteer at church here at church is to serve on the preaching team, and it's good to welcome you here. We're still in Easter because the church calendar starts with Easter Sunday, and the season of Easter continues all the way to Pentecost. As Pastor Rich is fond of saying, you may fast for 40 days of Lent, but you have seven long weeks of feasting during this season, right? Because during Easter, it's time to think through how do we live into the day-to-day reality that Jesus Christ is risen, right? Jesus Christ is risen, and it's not just a historical fact that affects our theology now. It's a living daily reality that should change the way we live, right? Because if Jesus is risen, everything is different. If Jesus is risen, then God is at work. If Jesus is risen, then we have confidence for the future. And so we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which as Rich pointed out, helps us live into the resurrection life that God intends for us. Because as Rich pointed out two weeks last week, the Sermon on the Mount parallels Moses going up to Mount Sinai. And and at Mount Sinai, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, which shapes the life and the character of Israel throughout the Old Testament. But when Jesus goes up the mountain, he offers the Sermon on the Mount and begins to describe what Christian character looks like. And how how do Christians influence the world? And how might we love our enemies? He engages us in a way that requires us, that demands that we have something that will be deeper and more profound than just willpower or hope or aspiration. We need the resurrection power of Jesus to help us be this new community, right, that will confront and confound the powers of the world as they deny who Jesus is. And the resurrection is the linchpin for this. Because you see, at the resurrection, God is confirming that everything that Jesus said about himself is true. Because if Jesus was really and said, I am the son of God and died on the cross and stayed dead, then really he's a liar, right? If Jesus was a great teacher, but he died on the cross and stayed dead, then his teachings are interesting, but not transformative. If Jesus said, I am God, and he dies on the cross, then he's merely deluded. If Jesus says, I am dying in your place and on your behalf on the cross, your sins are forgiven and it is finished, but he did not rise from the dead, then we're still trapped in our sin and there's no hope for us. But Jesus Christ is risen, right? Because Jesus is risen, we know the resurrection is God's way of confirming that everything Jesus said about the kingdom of God is the way and the truth and the life, right? That when he says, pick up your cross daily and follow me, we know that it's not just um, self-mortification, it's actually choosing to follow the way of Jesus. When he says, give up everything to save your souls, we know it's not a fool's errand, 
When he, we know when he says, look, even if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, my kingdom will prevail. Because Jesus is risen, we know this is the way to live. And so because of this, right, because we have trust in the resurrection, because we know Jesus is empowering us, we choose to press into the Sermon on the Mount and to live out its commands and to embrace its blessings. And one of the blessings is the one that we looked at last week. In Matthew 5, beginning verses 1 through 4, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. The disciples came to him and began to teach them, and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And last week, Pastor Rich, oops, too soon, preached on this verse, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Part of what we were called to do is this, embrace your insufficiency, your emptiness, and your failure. You are not enough. You can't be holy enough. You can't be smart enough. You can't be confident enough to be the kind of person that we all long to be. But instead, embrace your insignificance, insufficiency, and emptiness, and allow God's power to work within you. Find your identity in him, not in projecting your persona through social media. Find your confidence that the Holy Spirit is at work within you, not by just merely trying harder or attempting to do a little better, right? Acknowledge your weakness and brokenness so that you can allow the Holy Spirit's transforming work to work in your life so that you actually begin to be changed and look like Jesus. That's why Jesus can say, blessed are those who know that they're weak, Know that they're empty because they are going to encounter my power, my presence. It's a good thing to be with Jesus. So then you get to this next verse. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this one puzzled me a little bit more. How can you be blessed when you're crying? Right? Now, some of us can be happy. We, we shed happy tears. Right? You're excited and then you start weeping. I'm not one of those people, but how could you say, happy are you, experiencing blessedness are you if you're mourning? It's perplexing, right? It's almost like saying you can be a cat and dog at the same time. You can be two completely different things simultaneously. So probably the best thing to do as we hit this conundrum is to take a moment and let's pray. Um, Father, Help us to hear your voice so that we could become more like Jesus, more attentive to your spirit, more pleasing and delightful to you, and a greater blessing to the world. Amen. The challenge, of course, with this verse is that nobody really wants to be the kind of people who mourn, right? Who wants to be sad? In fact, we live in a world which hates that kind of thing, right? We live in a world... That's a little bit more of a culture of like hakuna matata, everything's going to be okay, and, um, you know, we feel the need to assert in our popular music, because I'm happy, clap along if you feel that happiness is the truth. The problem, of course, is it's not the truth. It's not the whole truth. We actually live in a broken world, don't we? We live in a world where people are dying all the time of preventable causes. We're dying in a world, as Pastor Rich reminded us, where countries attack their own citizens, both overseas and locally, right? We live in a world where our own sins 
so distort and destroy us that many of us feel powerless before them. We live in a world where our sins work together in such a way that we actually hurt one another. It's hard to be happy. The challenge, of course, is that our culture presses us in to try to ignore that, don't they? They encourage us, just distract yourself a little bit more. Put on a pair of headphones. You don't have to listen to the cries around you, right? Choose what you're going to listen to in the media. You can um, focus on just the things that you want to see. Ignore the pain within you. Buy something. It'll make you happy. Consume something. It'll delight you. Relate to that one person. He or she may distract you. This is true even in our churches, right? You can tell when you watch the church try to address issues of personal sin, systemic sin, or the brokenness world. There's immediate pushback against it because, frankly, even Christians don't want to deal with the messiness and brokenness and pain in the world. I was watching some of the social media around a conference this past week where people were speaking very clearly and decisively about issues of racial reconciliation, racial reconciliation, and you could tell from the comments that they were getting that mostly what we want as a church is racial reconciliation without real repentance, right? We mostly want and would prefer having personal counselors rather than confessors who we need to talk with. We want missions without mortification of the flesh that should cost us nothing to do good, we think. We want sanctification without sacrifice. And the problem is, Jesus very clearly says, godliness is not possible without some grief. Blessed, he says, experiencing God's blessing when you're able to mourn, because I promise you, he said, they will be comforted. When scripture challenges us to think about the problem of what should we be grieving about, it tends to circle around three major issues. It suggests we should grieve over our own sins our failure to become and to follow God and to know him and delight in him, right? We should grieve over the collective sin that we have as a people. We should be brokenhearted that we're a culture which not only sins individually, but corporately our sin works together to exploit people, to destroy people, to um, destroy environments. And as that destruction occurs, we should be grieved over the brokenness that that unleashes, in the lives of victims, in the lives of our families, we should be grieved. But it's hard. How do we become people who grieve as Christians should grieve when everything in the culture and so much in the church world doesn't want us to feel bad? That's why we're going to explore today the risen way of grief in the second of the Beatitudes. What does it mean to pursue Jesus so that our heart breaks with the things that break the heart of Jesus? As Jesus says, right, the only way forward to experience his blessing is to mourn, to grieve, and to be comforted. So what prevents us, really, from this? What holds us back? I want to suggest that one of the difficulties we have in mourning is that we harden our hearts. But Jesus' resurrection offers us the comfort that one day he will replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And so I think the primary way we begin to avoid mourning is we harden our hearts. I was thinking about this as I was preparing the sermon, it reminded me of a situation I had right out of college. A friend of mine named Jonathan um, called me the terrible news. His father had just passed away. 
His father was a business leader, a leader in his church, a well-respected man in his community, and he developed stomach cancer, and slowly over the course of many months began to wither away, and in intense pain, he died. And so friends of Jonathan's um, eventually alerted me to when the funeral was, and to my shame, I remember thinking, I wonder if I should go, right? Because I was like, there are going to be tons of people at Jonathan's dad's funeral. I won't even make a difference if I'm there. And um, if I go to the funeral and have to talk to Jonathan, like, what would I say? Like, what do you say to somebody who's just lost their dad in this terrible way? Like, oh, so, so sorry? Or that'd just be awkward. And like, he won't even remember it. it you know, like, there'll be so many people. And, and what I began to realize, right, was I wasn't thinking about Jonathan. I was thinking about my own discomfort at having to confront Jonathan's grief, right? The nature of hardening our hearts is that we turn from being an agent of salt and light in the lives of other people who God has placed us next to to comfort them and offer them hope, and we turn and begin to focus on our own comfort, our own fear of discomfort, our own desire for security, and the problem with hardening our hearts is it turns us inward to focus on ourselves rather than focus on the world that God loves. But this happens all the time, doesn't it? It doesn't just happen to me because I was kind of young right out of college. It happens to me every week on the subway, right? You hear the doors open, and there's somebody who's meant to shout out, you know, I need some money, and they're, they're rather pungent. And I don't know about you, but it's really hard not to harden my heart, to begin to turn away, to begin to, like, all of a sudden, I become really interested in the podcast that I'm listening to, and I have to close my eyes, right? Or that book is suddenly fascinating, right next to me, or I'm going to talk to my children. And I begin to shrink inward. My heart begins to harden, and I begin to turn away because I don't know how to confront my own discomfort rather than being interested in the discomfort of others, right? We do that all the time with the brokenness of the world. We do all that all the time with our own sin, don't we? I think of a story that the author Philip Yancey tells about a friend of his named Daniel. Um, Daniel and Daniel's wife and Philip and his, Philip's wife used to go out a lot, right? They'd hang out, they'd go out to watch movies, have meals together, and about seven or eight years into that friendship, um, Daniel called Philip and said, hey, we, could we meet for breakfast at the local diner? And so Philip said, sure, and after a brief catching up, Philip said, hey, what do you want to talk about? Daniel looked up and said, um, Philip, I've met someone. Um, I love her, Philip. Like, with this woman, I feel alive for the first time in like seven or eight years. I've been married for 15 years. I can't tell you how hard those 15 years have been. For the first time, I have dreams for my future. I feel like I can love somebody and be loved by them freely. We support and encourage one another. Philip, for the first time in so long, I finally feel alive. And Philip said, you've been married 15 years to your wife, you have children, what are you thinking? And he said, I know, but Philip, for the first time, I'm happy. So here's what I want to ask you. Do you think God will forgive me if I leave my wife and get married to this woman instead? What would you say if your friend asked you that question? How would you respond? Do you think God will forgive me, Philip, if I do this? I appreciate 
how wise Philippians is and how hard he studied scripture because he looked at Daniel and said, you know, Daniel, of course God would forgive you. I mean, look at scripture, right? Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, Paul, God seems to love forgiving adulterers and murderers and liars and thieves and blasphemers. He welcomes them back in. Daniel, I have no question God would forgive you. What I think I need to ask you, though, is will you even care? If you decide to pursue this relationship without actually repenting of it, do you, will you even care that God chooses to forgive you? Or will you have so hard in your heart that it won't matter to you? But we do that all the time, don't we? Aren't we all a little bit like Daniel? Maybe not so flagrantly or so large, but in small ways, right? When we think about our own sins, the sins that we find ourselves repeating over and over, don't we begin to harden our own hearts to actual godly sorrow over them? Right? We begin to justify them in funny ways. Oh, well, you know, if you just understood my family of origin, you'd understand why I keep doing this, right? And we, we psychologize it away. Or we go like, oh, I just kind of fell into sin, like accidentally. It just happened. I don't know how it did. You know, I just top toppled over into it. Couldn't stop myself, right? We attribute it to all outside forces. Well, you know, it's not my fault. If it weren't for X, Y, and Z, I wouldn't have done it and we externalize responsibility, we harden our hearts to the reality that sin breaks God's heart, that it breaks our relationship with God, it destroys us, and it destroys the people around us. It's heartbreaking and heart-killing. We do this not just with our own sin, of course. We do this around issues of justice and injustice all the time, don't we? The way that we get around... Our, um, our fear of having our hearts broken is that we strip people of their personhood as we do this to justify our, our corporate sins. Family reunification, policies and immigration get reduced to chain migration, right? We've reduced people to a metal object as a way of not having to confront the reality that there are people involved and families involved that we should, be care, we should care about. A baby just becomes a blob of tissue when we're talking about um, abortion because it's easier to deal with a blob of tissue than a child. A young black boy named um, Brandon Walker just becomes one of those people. I don't know if you heard the story that occurred, I think it was on Thursday or maybe Friday. Brandon Walker is 14. He was supposed to catch a bus to go to school. His mom is at home. His dad's serving overseas in the military, but probably because of a little bit of a disciplinary issue, his mom took his phone away for a day or two. But he missed the bus. He didn't know how to get to school, so he walked up to a nearby house and knocked on the door, hoping to get directions on how best to get to school. The woman, different race than Brandon, opened the door and just began screaming, what are you people doing here? What are these people doing in my neighborhood? which infuriated her husband who picked up a shotgun, which happened to be in the house, pulled it out and aimed it at Brandon, who had the presence of mind to run when he heard a bang. Thankfully, the gun missed. When the Fox News reporter talked to Brandon's mom, he, he said to her, your son could have become a hashtag today just because of how he looks in a neighborhood he belongs to. What turns an image-bearing God image bearing human being 
into somebody that we can dispose of when we choose to call them those people rather than somebody with a name and an identity and a relationship and a network, right? We externalize, we psychologize, we dehumanize people to harden our hearts so that we don't have to grieve with them. That's in part what we talk about here with emotionally healthy spirituality, right? Until we grieve our own losses, until we allow our heart to be broken, we will always project our own brokenness onto the people around us to damaging effect. And that's why we need the resurrection promise that God will give us hearts of flesh because we so often have hardened hearts of stone. We need to allow our hearts to break so that we can actually experience the comfort and change that God desires us to have. And when our hearts begin to break, what we'll find, I think, is that actually we begin to pray and engage with God in new ways. Because as we cry out, this is not what you intended. This is not what you wanted it to be. Suddenly we're beginning to pray. And I think the possibility for change and reconciliation can occur. Emmanuel Contongole and Chris Rice say it this way, lament, which is grieving, right, is not despair, and it's not whining, it's not crying into a void. Grief, mourning, lament is a cry directed to God. It is the cry of those who seek the truth of the world's deep wounds and the cost of seeking peace. It is the prayer of those who are deeply disturbed by the way things are. The journey of reconciliation is grounded in the practice of lament. Because if God has indeed resurrected Jesus from the dead, then we know with regard to her own sin that our sin no longer has dominion over us, but Jesus Christ has died, taken care of our shame and our guilt, and is in the process of transforming us. And it's not just a vain hope, but Jesus is alive, right? We know that Jesus is changing the course of history, and history bends toward justice, not because that's how history naturally goes, but because God on the cross said, I will defeat the principalities and powers that oppress people and demonstrate to you that it will not triumph in the end because I have resurrected my son. And what I began there will continue throughout history, right? It offers us new hope as a people for reconciliation because at the cross, Jesus brings us together, people who have enmity and hatred toward one another or apathy and indifference and welds us together into a new community. And God says, I, my son, died and is risen and I'm bringing you with him into a new community. And if that's true, then it allows us to grieve our sins because then we can experience the comfort of forgiveness. Resurrection reminds us that though Jesus triumphed over our sin, but we will mourn at Calvary in order to anticipate and experience the joy of Easter. When we allow ourselves to grieve, I think we experience the comfort of reconciliation because Jesus is building a new community for himself. When our hearts break, the injustices that we see around the world look different. During the heights of the Black Lives Matter protest, I was at an university conference, and I met the son of one of my colleagues, Brad Everett. His son was about three or four, right? African-American young boy with all of the joy, curiosity, laughter, and rambunctiousness that you would hope for in a three- or four-year-old. And he was running around the back of the conference, obviously delighting in the people at the room, And I don't know why it took that, but I looked at Brad's son and I just thought, never again. He will not be turned into a hashtag, right? No Tamir Rice here. Brad Everett's son deserves to live and deserves to flourish and should not be afraid. 
right? And suddenly my heart began to break in a new way because when I allowed my heart to be softened and I saw him as a person created in God's image, I could not no longer care. When I think about the me too and the church too issues, I think about a student I invested in when I was on campus at the University of Chicago. She had been um, sexually abused by two different pastors at two different churches and um, date raped at her high school prom. And I, when I think about women who've been sexually harassed and abused, I think of her. And I think never again should that be happening in the church which should be safe and have integrity and honesty. Never again should a woman not be heard and cared for and believed in a situation like this. It's no longer abstract. My heart has broken. And suddenly, I am praying differently, acting differently, preaching differently, protesting differently. We are actually engaged in participating in what God is doing. But how do we soften our hearts? What are the practical steps we can take? I want to suggest two. One is that we need to see with new eyes, and then we need to pray with kind of new souls. How do we soften our hearts? Jesus' resurrection offers us the courage to see the world honestly. We can't shut our eyes to the evils in the world and in our own hearts. I think of a friend of mine. We were at lunch after church back when I was living in Chicago, and we were eating lunch, and she said, you know, Greg, your prayers at church really bum me out. (laughs) That wasn't the effect I was planning to have, so I put some food in my mouth to buy some time. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, so we've been singing in worship, and my heart's full, my spirit's lifted up, and then you dawdle over to the podium, and you're praying like, Lord, during this worship service, we know that nine people will commit suicide, 1,500 children will die of hunger or preventable diseases, blah, 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 blah. And you're like this pin that pricks my balloon. Greg, I've had a hard week. I'm barely holding on to my faith. I need to be encouraged with the power of the resurrection and you come up with all these terrible things. You totally destroy my worship buzz every Sunday that you pray. (laughs) They don't give awards for that. But what I told her after taking another mouthful of food to buy some time was, you know, know, here's why I do that. Because I find it difficult to sing about God's love and mercy and grace knowing that there's a child dying because we chose not to feed him, right? How do I sing about the joy of my salvation knowing that millions of people are going to a Christless eternity because the church has not organized itself toward mission, right? How do I begin to worship God with a hallelujah when people are dying, all around me. The only way I can sing those songs with integrity is to hold those faces in my mind and go, both of these are true at the same time. So Lord, would you act? Lord, would you move? Lord, would you move us to do the things that you need us to do? Because otherwise, Karl Marx was right, right? Religion is just the opiate of the masses. It's being used to make sure that we don't care and don't act and don't move, but we just continue to buy the things that people want us to buy and consume the things that people want us to consume and eat the things that people want us to eat. This week, right, I'm so glad Pastor Rich brought up the chemical warfare attacks in Syria, but also our own bombing of that country. We have to wrestle with that, and I have to be able to hold that before the Lord and go, what does this mean, right? After 
Centuries of having a gospel which tells us God unites us with him in one body together. How do I deal with the reality of Philadelphia um, this past week where two black realtors were sitting down waiting for a friend and then were promptly arrested because they hadn't bought anything in the first 20 minutes rather than being asked, can I serve you? How do I manage looking at my child's face when I can see the damage I've caused when I've yelled at her because her room is messy? Not because her room is that messy, just because I'm frustrated and stressed out and anxious about work and I'm taking it out on the first area of disorder I see at my home. How do I avoid just going, well, you know, it was a bad day, and instead for my heart to be soft enough to turn and to say, that was wrong, will you forgive me? Nehemiah maybe gives us an example of how we do that. How do we avoid covering our eyes, having blinkers on so we don't have to confront the world? In Nehemiah 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, um, I was in the citadel of Susa, and Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What strikes me about Nehemiah is it would be so easy to live in the citadel of Susa, right? You're in the capital and cultural and economic capital of an empire. You're safe, you're secure, you're happy, you're insulated from the problems of the world. But Nehemiah chooses when he hears people from Jerusalem have come to invite them to his palace room and to begin to question them about the walls in Jerusalem. He leaves his beautiful palace setting and enters into their world asking questions about them. He breaks out of his own comfort, intentionally challenges the information that he gets so that he begins to hear about the brokenness of the world. How could we do that? Right, Because the challenge is we can completely control what we begin to hear and see, can't we? You could, if you want, on social media, just decide all I want are kitten photos every day and all day. We choose our podcasts and our news and our blogs so that they reinforce our biases and comfort us in our socioeconomic position and our cultural biases, whatever they are. What would it look like if we intentionally began to pursue disturbing news? News that breaks our heart, news that causes us to mourn, news that makes us uncomfortable. How would we then have eyes to see what God is doing so that tears would mark the ways that we see, would become the lens through which we see the world, so that maybe we could see more clearly? I was talking um, to a woman after first service. She said, you know, I'm... I was challenged by what you said because so often in the morning I listen to the news to get my commute time and to get the weather, but I can't bear the burden of the terrible news I hear. It just weighs on me all day. What do I do, right? She has eyes to see and she goes, am I, you're telling me I'm blessed? And I'm like, you're getting close. The other thing we have to do besides having eyes to see is actually having hearts that are willing to pray and to engage with God because I'm convinced when our hearts are softened, Jesus' resurrection invites us to participate in God's purposes, God's person, and God's prayers. Um, I love this quote by Bob Pierce, who's the founder of World Vision. Um, he was in Korea during the Korean War, and he'd often pick up the bodies of Korean orphans who were emaciated and thin. He said, I would hold seven-year-olds and wonder if they were four-year-olds. 
And he said, as I was holding them, the cry that emerged out of my heart was, Lord, let my heart break with the things that break the heart of God. Imagine what it would be like if we began to pray that prayer as a church. Lord, let my heart break with the, thi- break with the things that break the heart of God so that my heart would be broken over my own sin just like your heart is broken over it. Right, That I would see the sins of my brothers and sisters and I wouldn't be judgmental or hypocritical about them, but I'd actually have compassion and mercy for them. That's how you can love your enemies and show mercy to those who persecute you. Right? If our hearts broke with the things that broke the heart of God, we'd be engaging in justice because we'd find them intolerable rather than acceptable or ignorable. If our hearts broke with the things that break the heart of God, our hearts would look more like God's. And wouldn't you want that? Isn't that what we long for in the end, that we would look and act more like God? That we'd look more like Jesus? If that was true, if we knew that God's heart broke over injustice, then we'd actually engage with his person differently, right? We'd actually celebrate the fact that our God is a God who hears the cry of the poor. A colleague and friend of mine um, did a study of the top kind of worship songs, and he said only about five of them deal with the issues of justice and pain, and 40% of the psalms do. Why is there such a discrepancy? We might worship with different kinds of songs. I learned this song at the Urbana Student Missions Conference. It's called The Cry of the Poor, and it struck me because I had never heard in all my church upbringing Songs that celebrate a God who hears the cry of the poor. This is what the refrain is like. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. Blessed be the Lord. Will you join? The Lord hears the cry of the poor. Blessed be the Lord. This is the verse. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise ever in my mouth. Let my soul glory in the Lord. For he hears the cry of the poor. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. Blessed be the Lord. Let the lowly hear and be glad. The Lord listens to their pleas, and to hearts broken he is near. For he hears the cry of the poor. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. Blessed be the Lord. Imagine delighting in knowing a God who hears the broken-hearted pleas of the world around us, who hears our broken and fractured relationships, our struggling marriages, our estranged children, who hears those who've been disenfranchised or disillusioned, who understands our frailty and answers and responds. This, my friends, is good news and knowing God. Maybe the other thing we do besides participating in God's purposes and knowing his person, and I'll end with this, is actually praying God's own prayer. In Romans 8, Paul is reflecting on if the resurrection is true, then the whole globe 
The whole world, the whole cosmos is going to experience resurrection and change at the last day. And he gives us these hopeful words. Now, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, mourning with us as the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, right? We never mourn alone because literally the whole world is groaning and mourning with us. Perhaps when we encounter the devastation of hurricanes in Puerto Rico or famines in Africa or outbreaks of disease in another part of the world, rather than just sending thoughts and prayers or turning off the television, we'd actually begin to say, I hear creation crying out, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not what you intended. You intended a world where people flourish, where there's beauty and harmony and diversity embedded in everything. And instead, we have nature red in tooth and claw. But literally, with every natural disaster, the world cries out, Lord, I agonize and I mourn. We don't mourn alone just because we mourn with creation, right? We mourn with the whole church because that's where Paul goes next, not only so, but we ourselves, the whole church, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, right? We never mourn alone in our grief, right? I can mourn my sin with some courage because I know all of you who are followers of Jesus in this room are doing the same thing. There's no shame and there's no guilt in saying I'm a sinner and I'm broken and I fail repeatedly because I trust that the vast majority of you in this room would say the same thing. I'm not alone. I never have to be alone in confronting it. I don't have to worry about confronting the corporate sins that we have because we do that together as we mourn. We do that in conjunction with our brothers and sisters around the world. When I worry about corruption in the systems around us, I pray for my, and with my brothers and sisters in countries where corruption is far deeper, greater, and more pervasive. When I think about the small persecutions I feel, I pray with my brothers and sisters in Egypt or Afghanistan who wonder if the next time they go to church, they're going to be bombed and killed. I never mourn alone. Maybe most importantly, though, is that last line. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Isn't that amazing? Right? When we have run out of words in our grief, right? Because if any of you have ever seen somebody who's gotten the phone call that somebody important to them has died, they're not articulate in that moment, right? What they have is a guttural scream or groan, no, ah! And when you've run out of words, when the morning has broken your soul so that you can say nothing other than an inarticulate shriek, what you have is the promise that the Holy Spirit is groaning without words with you. That your very moans of agony may be the voice of the Spirit to this world and to the church saying, pay attention, wake up and anticipate my comfort. Because what this passage reminds us in Romans is that this is not the end of the story, but one day God will complete what he began at the resurrection of Jesus. That the people of God will be revealed in their glory because we will be shown to be glorified in Christ like at the end. That all things will be made new as the world is recreated and re restored, and God will demonstrate his goodness, his justice, his holiness, and his mercy in ways so that his glory fills the world like the oceans fill the sea. And it's with that kind of hope, my friends, we can really say, Blessed are those who mourn we will be comforted. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, I preached this 
sermon, and yet I know how hard my heart is. I know how quickly I want to avert my eyes so that I do not become discomforted. And I know how unchristlikeness, how unchristlike I am. So I pray, in your mercy, give me ears to hear the groanings of creation, the church, and your spirit, so that my eyes could see the world that you've created and love, so that my heart would be broken. And then from there, I would see the magnitude of your promise and grace. Amen. Amen.